Asia Tech Podcast with Graham Brown and Michael Waits. Hi, this is Michael Waits from ATP Crypto. I'm talking to Jahan Chu, the managing partner of Kinetic Capital. Good morning. Good morning, Michael. Thanks for having me. Thanks for being here. I know you were particularly busy. You're probably always busy, but I know you were particularly busy last night, so I appreciate you um, making the time. We joked a little bit earlier. It's not like grandpa time, but it is still early in the morning, so... Thank you very much. Well, it was very, uh, yesterday was Thanksgiving for, for all the listeners out there, and it was a very crypto Thanksgiving. Uh, I, I'd hope to have a moratorium on any blockchain discussion just so I can get a, get away from it, but all of my friends still want to know, what should I be buying? Right. How should I be looking at the market? What should I Why be is investing BCH in? going up so much? <laughs> the cash. Um, do you want to just back up a little bit and give me and give the listeners a little bit of background, like where you're from, what you've been doing, and then we can move into how you got involved in all of this stuff, yeah? Sure, happy to. So uh, I'm American by birth. Uh, I was born in New Jersey, and I kind of grew up in New Jersey uh, with a short stint out here in Hong Kong. And I think um, I was really lucky to have had a father who was based in, in Beijing at the time, and I went to international school for a few years in Hong Kong. And, and I bring that up because uh, the the ability to have traveled at a very early age and see different cultures, I think, really left uh, an important mark. So um, good. Uh, yeah, yeah. So I, you know, I had to adapt a lot, um, but I was very used to uh, different types of situations and, and being, you know, kind of comfortably uncomfortable. Uh, so I went back to the U.S. I went to boarding school. Uh, Where did you go? Uh, I went to a small school in Pennsylvania called Westtown Friends. Nice. Yeah, and. Uh, for those of you that know, Friends schools are, it's a Quaker school, a Quaker system, uh, which is a, a very liberal uh, and um, peaceful denomination of Christianity. Um, most people ask me if I, you know, make oatmeal, but I don't. I don't. Uh, but, yeah. but the Quakers um, are a very interesting uh, kind of denomination of Christianity where uh, it's an emphasis on community. And I think somewhere in there uh, is an inroad to, to how I kind of see the, the blockchain space. But we'll get there in a second. Yeah. Um, I graduated. I went to Johns Hopkins nice. uh, for international relations uh, and East Asian studies. Had a slight minor uh, in economics, uh, but I got over it. Uh, and then <laughs> basically I graduated. And at, during the time, I had taught myself uh, how, to, how to code web pages. This was already, I think I, it was 1996 when I learned how to code web pages a 97 and I was using Photoshop to create um, party invitations for my fraternity. So luckily that turned out to be quite useful. And 98, when I graduated, the, the, you know, dot com industry was booming. And, uh, I had the opportunity to take a job in DC, uh, with a consulting firm. Uh, but at the last moment I was like, I want to move to New York. Uh, I was lucky enough to be offered a job at a startup, uh, in Chelsea. I kind of hopped on the train went to New York and, and, you know, sought my fortune. So I was with the startup for a few years, uh, for about a year and a half, building web pages and just, you know, learning the business. Uh, I was recruited into Sotheby's auction house to help them launch their online auctions. Um, and that was really interesting because, you know, there are many, so many parallels to the blockchain space. And, you know, everybody says that uh, the blockchain space is where we were at the internet in 1994, 97, or just choose a year. And I find that's actually kind of true. Um, and at that time, um, I was offered, like, a, I would triple my salary just by moving from one sh web development shop to Sotheby's. And, and this kind of, you know, sudden surge in, in, um, in... Income, yeah. Income, yeah, there you go. 
was was quite interesting. It was the first time I'd kind of felt that um, this sudden onrush onrush of, of money right. um, and capability, financial capability. But it's so, a it's a weird feeling if you don't mind me saying, just that yeah. accumulation of resources and a, and a very quick accumulation of resources. It makes you wonder like what it's like sometimes to be. You know, like a sports star, right? You're 18, 19, 20 years old, and then instantaneously you just have all these excess resources. It's just interesting to watch and to feel. Yeah, and at that time, it was happening all around me. It wasn't. It wasn't just me. Everybody right. was just getting getting paid getting because rich, they were yeah. there. Yeah. And I think that we also see that now in the blockchain space. Many of the people who were early, they're just you know they have a lot of means now because they were just there. Yeah. Sometimes you know you, you get a lot just by showing up. Um. So I was with Sotheby's for a while. Uh, it was quite interesting. Uh, we famously sold the Declaration of Independence uh, as our first lot on the online auctions. Uh, and that was really interesting. I mean, the idea that you could sell a $7 million you know, document of, of arguable value up and down um, online was, was really ahead of its time. Uh, too far ahead of its time, as it turned out. Uh, and the business model faltered and fell, and uh, it didn't help that our CEO of the time, uh, Dee Dee Brooks, went to prison for collusion with uh, Sotheby, or with Christie's. With Christie's, yeah, um, I remember. But uh, it was okay. Um, you know, I was in tech, uh, and, you know, I had a stable job, and, you know, we built out uh, a number of software applications for Sotheby's, including um, a CRM, like a content um, customer relation management system, mm-hmm. a content management system. Um, I worked on... Uh, the enterprise install of SAP, wow, which was a really big project for the for the entire IT team. Yeah, uh, and then in the background, I just I kind of cobbled together a, a small PHP MySQL intranet for them. Um, although I'm not a really good programmer, uh, I was a little bit better than everybody else at at least at PHP. So that was helpful. <laughs> in a so, way, yeah. in a way though, like having web development skills and having slight PHP skills, it's just good to understand the frameworks, right, and how software is developed. I'm not a great software developer either, but I do understand how it works. So it's, I find it really powerful, actually. It's a certain way of of thinking and constructing yeah. um, constructing thought and constructing kind of structures. So I I, I quite liked it. Um, although, you know, it takes a certain mindset to be able to just sit down and code. Yeah, it does. Uh, and I'm far too ADD for that. So, <laughs> Welcome to the club. <laughs> it's a really big club. <laughs> it is. Yeah, we're not alone for sure. So uh, fast forward, I was, you know, I was at Sotheby's um, and they moved me to Hong Kong because I'm Asian uh, and the market was growing in Asia. And they, you know, kind of made me the, the head of client development uh, for the APAC region. And what that meant was, that in the auction world, there are very, very high-value clients who buy one thing. So they just focus on collecting art, or they just focus on collecting antiques, uh, or they just focus on collecting jewelry. And then there are like super high-level people, the, the VVVIPs, who buy everything. And they'll buy, you know, across all kind of um, sectors. And the ability to try and coordinate all of their activities, uh, and at the same time service them as clients, uh, was actually a very complex uh, type of uh, activity. So during my time at IT, I had to help them to build out uh, their their CRM. Uh, and so I was one of the only people in Asia that knew how, to work, how it worked. So <laughs> somehow I had kind of been you know, moved over from IT to uh, client relationship management, basically. Uh, and I was kind of in the privileged position to see how the very, you know, the the point one percent uh, were living and transacting, and, and get get a sense of that. Um, I left the tech world, left Sotheby's, and decided to become an art dealer. 
there was an, a gap in the market. Uh, Asian or Chinese contemporary art specifically was booming in 2008. Um, and I myself had already started collecting. I had a little bit of, you know, pocket money. Right. And I was thinking about, oh, should I buy, like, should I buy an apartment? Should I get into property or something like this? And I realized that the, you know, the global, one of the two global market makers for Chinese contemporary art was in the office next to me. And so it made sense for me to kind of put my money where, you know, where I had the most uh, access. Um, so my friend Evelyn Lin was the head of uh, Chinese contemporary art. Uh, and she was really one of the, the two people who was, you know, helping to architect what the market looked like. Yeah. What was important, what was selling at, at auction. Um, and so I started collecting art. Um, uh, but everybody else collecting art, I felt they didn't really know what they were doing. Um, they were just kind of buying whatever was, you know, seemed like it was going to make money or seemed hot. There was no criticality to how people were looking at artists, uh, you know, careers and, and their output and, and their, their kind of impact. Um, and there was a real kind of mismatch between what was important from, you know, the kind of art historical or academic or, uh, you know, kind of the, the, the actual side of art versus what was selling. Uh, and I wanted to bridge that gap. So I wanted to help collectors buy the right stuff. So I became an art advisor um, in August of 2008. Um, global financial crisis started September 2008. Yeah. So it was absolutely the worst time to start this type of business. I mean, I'm trying to sell, you know, luxury high-end items. Right. You know. Into a crashing financial market. Into a crashing market. So yeah. um, it was actually, you know, a really good education. I struggled a lot in the beginning. I had to find my way. Um, but luckily, you know, Asia was not hit as hard. Uh, and for some reason, people were still buying art. So I did that for a number of years, uh, and in the process, I, I was lucky enough to, to meet a number of people um, who were relatively influential and powerful uh, in the financial industry in Hong Kong, right. uh, and that would become useful later. So my commitment to the art world was always not only the commercial side, but also the community side. So I was fortunate enough to be um, appointed to the, the board of directors of a, a small not-for-profit called Parasite Art Space, which is really one of the leading voices in the contemporary art scene in, in Asia. Uh, and I got involved with the Asia Art Archive and, and a few other places. Um, but it was that kind of exercise of being at the leadership side of developing communities, which right. I think helped me later. So fast forward to 2013. Um, if I recall correctly, I was getting a haircut. Uh, I was reading GQ, uh, and there was an article about the Winklevoss twins. Right. And it was just kind of, you know, funny. You know, the twins, they're, they're a bit of a punchline in, in many circles. Well, they were all arguing, they were arguing with the Facebook guys and all the other stuff, right? Exactly, yeah. exactly. Uh, I read about what they were doing with Bitcoin. I thought it was kind of stupid. It didn't make sense to me. I, I basically brushed it off. Um, but that was my, my first real kind of touch point. This was late 2013. I then read an, an article by Chris Dixon, who is, you know, an investor uh, I really, really respect. He, he's now over at uh, Andrews and Horowitz, A16Z, right. um, talking about why Bitcoin was important. And then the final nail was this video that I watched um, on YouTube made by Vice magazine. Uh, and it was an interview with a professor named Jerry Brito, uh, who has since become uh, one of the, you know, really leading voices for um regulatory reform 
uh, for cryptocurrencies in the U.S. I think he's over at Coin Center now. And in that really concise, really sharp uh, explanation of, of Bitcoin, he talked about this idea of proof of existence. And proof of existence is basically this idea that you could um, you could lock or secure information uh, for into a blockchain uh, and have it persist, that it would be there forever. And so in the same way that, you know, in the old days, people would uh, take, you know, a script or an idea or a thought or a document, seal it in an envelope, send it to themselves and have a government postmark it, that being an authority timestamp for, you know, the sealed envelope, I thought that was quite interesting that we could not do that digitally. And so I just became really, you know, fascinated by this idea. And, and that was really my, the thread that I started pulling on. Um, and so my entry into cryptocurrency is actually in the application space. It's not really in the currency space. Right. So I was always thinking about it. What can this do? What can blockchain do uh, for application development? Uh, and that was really my, my kind of entrance into it. Um, after that, you know, I still helped uh, to start the Bitcoin Association of Hong Kong, which is, you know, uh, a 3,000-member strong uh, Bitcoin um, supporter and educator and awareness group based in Hong Kong with a number of other people uh, in Hong Kong who have now since become, you know, quite uh, quite influential in their own right. So right. Leonard Weiss, uh, Aurelio Manon from Gatecoin, Arthur Hayes from BitMEX, uh, and, and a bunch of other people. Yeah, I've interviewed Arthur, and I will interview Aurelio Manon as well. So... It's a, the community that's actually being built up in um, Hong Kong is actually quite interesting. So it should not be a big surprise actually for people if for no other reason than there's, it's a, been a massive financial center, if not the center of finance in Asia for a long time, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and that's why I think Hong Kong is quite well suited uh, to kind of carry this, this torch forward and in, in, in the near future. So fast forward, uh, I started the Ethereum meetup. Um, uh, the first meetup, because nobody was talking about Ethereum, and you know, in March 2014, um, it was you know a couple of people were talking about it on the internet, uh, but nobody you know in Hong Kong was talking about it, and I was fascinated. I watched uh, you know the video uh, of Vitalik's presentation in Miami, uh, and I was just hooked, uh, and I was hooked by him because I had seen presentations by you know another a number of people who were developing different blockchains. And for some reason, Vitalik just made sense. Right. In his own way, everything just fit. It was very, very logical. Um, so I started the first meetup. Five people came. Uh, <laughs> we did it in a dark bar called Blackbird uh, in Shenglan in Hong Kong. And uh, we had Stefan Tool uh, Skype in from, I guess, where, I guess it must have been um, Switzerland at the time. Uh, just to explain what Ethereum was. Right. Um, and we, we kind of did it over Skype, and it was great. Uh, Stefan Toole obviously uh, had his own notoriety or, or kind of infamy uh, as the one of the founders of the DAO. Right. So it grew from there. Um, you know, I started the Hyperledger meetup. We started a few other kind of uh, community organizations. But I think by now I've done, you know, 80 or 90 different uh, events, including... Uh, we did the first Bitcoin conference in Hong Kong called Rise Bitcoin back in 2014. Um, I did a, um, a conference with uh, the Hong Kong Monetary Authority uh, called Blockchain Surge, uh, in which we had speed dating for startups and enterprises. 
Um, and I've brought a number of people, you know, in to speak. Everyone from Brian Bellendorf, the executive director of Hyperledger, uh, to Joe Lubin from Consensus, and I've had Vitalik, I think, six times here, and you know, always just trying to educate, influence, uh, and win hearts and minds for blockchain. And how have you seen this? So how have you seen the growth since 2013? In other words, if you went, you've done 80 of these meetings or sort of events, and the first one was five people in like a dark bar in Shangwan, right? And if you do one today, is it a thousand people show up? No, no. I mean, you know, I'm sure you keep it small, else. right? But yeah, but still, yeah. The interest is would, much bigger now, right? Yeah, they're much bigger now. Um, I would say that for, for good speakers, you know, it's, it's very easy to pull in you know, 80 to a hundred, hundred plus people. Um, sometimes, you know, I, I would say that a good crowd is like 200, 250. Yeah. So again, just for your reference, I'm, I'm speaking at a blockchain conference in Bangkok on December 13th. So the French tech, obviously the French government's, um, push for technology and technology development globally is sponsoring an event in Bangkok. And there are three or four speakers there. There should be, like you said, 70 to 80 people there. So around the same type of event that you, you like to do. Yeah. Yeah. And I think these conferences are, are, are very useful right now, uh, especially in areas like, like Thailand where, you know, there's not as much, uh, kind of traffic as there is. I mean, people are always coming through Hong Kong. Um, every week we have, you know, startups and, you know, blockchain startups and, and blockchain uh, kind of luminaries coming through. So we're fortunate to have that. Um, last year, um, uh, 2016, um, I decided to get serious uh, with blockchain. I, I found that it was taking over my life. I was spending about 30 to 40% of my time uh, either reading or investing or talking about blockchain. Right. I had a friend named Lawrence Chu, uh, who is a, a private equity investor and tech investor here in Hong Kong, uh, who's an old friend and, you know, we collect art together. Uh, and, and he said, you know, after years of listening to me blather on about blockchain, he said, all right. <laughs> Shouldn't we do something? Let's, yeah, let's start a fund. So we did. Myself, Lawrence Chu, and Stefan Verhelst, our third partner, um, we decided to start a fund and started off as a VC fund um, trying to invest in equity, um, early stage blockchain equity, uh, and has now evolved into Kinetic Capital, which we describe as a blockchain platform. Uh, and we have three arms, uh, one for asset management, one for uh, technology, and then one for advisory. Um, the asset management side consists of a couple of funds, obviously the, the equity fund, but then also token funds. So investing directly in uh, cryptocurrencies and tokens uh, with various strategies. Uh, and we're also launching a tracker fund for single currency uh, kind of crypto. Uh, the technology side is in partnership uh, with a local development studio where we're providing smart contract solutions and security audits. Uh, and then finally, the last one is uh, the advisory side, where we work with startups to help them understand tokenization and then, uh, if appropriate, help them to execute their token sales. So do you want to talk a little bit about, so ICOs, tokenization of everything is becoming very popular right now. Do you want to talk a little bit in, in more detail about what tokenization is, why it matters, and how you help startups do that? Sure. Um I would say that, you know, the, the killer app of Ethereum specifically is the idea of a, uh, a mass token. Now, the tokenization of, of everything, I think, uh, is really around um, a simple, you know, maybe kind of too simple equation. 
anything that has value can be can be captured or can, can be quantified. That value can be quantified in the form of a token. Uh, a token, obviously, being you know some type of um, uh, packet of information that has uh, a persistent persistent kind of identity across contexts. So you anything which has value can be quantified in the form of a token. Anything that has that can be tokenized uh, can be traded. Anything that can be traded can be you know um, traded in, in in a market uh, against anything else, uh, and therefore tokenization equals a universal barter system. So when I think of tokenization, I don't think of it as okay, well here's Bitcoin and here's Ether and they do their own thing. I think of it as this uh, kind of eventual um, ecosystem of just you know, kind of freely flowing value in all forms, whether it's a physical asset, which is backing a token, whether it is a uh, kind of computational asset like Ethereum uh, or, you know, Golem, which, you know, tokenizes computational uh, steps and processing power, or whether it's like Digix, which tokenizes physical gold, um, or even kind of slightly more conceptual um, tokenization, uh, like Chronobank, which, which tokenizes, you know, the idea of a labor hour. Um, and, you know, one of these other ideas that I love is this, uh, was really kind of pioneered by Simon Delu-Rivier from, uh, Consensus and these ideas of attention markets and curation markets, looking at this idea of like Dogecoin, which isn't really backed by anything except the meaning that the community gives to each token via their interest them signaling interest and, and uh, membership in the Doge community. Right. So there's so many ways that you know the the kind of universe of value that surrounds us can now be identified, quantified, and traded. It's fascinating to me. Yeah, I and mean, that's just the tokenization side. Right. That's just tokenization. Do you, Do you want to talk a little bit? So I want to back up a little bit, right? Because you mentioned this concept of this proof of this proof of identity right in other words a proof of existence in the sense that if i send myself an, a mail a physical mail right and i timestamp it i put a stamp on it and send it through the post office i get it and i prove to myself that i actually did it at a certain time and at a certain place and that's unchangeable because it's time stamped right yep so this seems to be the perfect introduction to what ethereum is right and all the the smart concept the smart contract concept around ethereum do you want to talk about why that's really important as well? And then I want to talk a little bit more about tokens too, because I think there's a lot more to discuss there. Absolutely. So Ethereum, when it was first uh, developed by by Vitalik uh, and a few other people, uh, Gavin Wood and and um, Gustav, they, you know, Vitalik really envisioned it um, as a, a solution to the problem which he had had, which is that he wanted Bitcoin to do more, uh, but he was unable to a get the attention of the core devs to support this idea, uh, and b he had tried some of the variants. I think uh, he tried colored coins, um, and just couldn't find uh, the flexibility and, and range to achieve functionality on Bitcoin. So he made a proposal to develop a a new blockchain, which was a Turing complete blockchain, uh, meaning. It would you could write you know anything could be scripted on top of it. Right. Um, had to turn complete scripting language on top of a blockchain, which you know anything you can imagine you would just write it. Um, so a blockchain with no features uh, as the feature, 
So he, you know, got a number of people together in Miami. They hashed it out. Uh, they no, developed it. No pun intended, I presume. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, and that was really the, the start of it. The idea was that the blockchain could help to secure information and functionality. Uh, and, you know, this was a blockchain that could do it. Right. So now let's talk a little bit about bit more about the tokens, right? So you're sitting in the center of finance in Asia. You can make a case that that's not going to get weaker. That's just going to get stronger in Hong Kong, particularly with the relationship with China. Um, and, you know, my relationship for finance in Hong Kong goes back all the way to 1990. My first time in Hong Kong was, yeah, February, I'm sorry, July of 1990. So it's been a while. Um, how do you see this whole ICO, so initial coin offering and the token market developing over time? And do you have a view on other people's commentary that this is just a big scam? I don't think it is at all, and I have my own very strong views about this. But can you talk about why this is so important? Sure. Um, I think that especially for you know uh, the token markets, I think at, at a base level, tokenization has released just – so much value into the economy. Um, right now, it's to the tune of about $200 billion, which is really a drop in the bucket. Um, but it has had the, the effect of really kind of unleashing not only the, 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 you know, the value of each of the tokens, but the value of the mindshare of people who are now paying attention. And it's a weighted mindshare. It's not just on a per capita basis where people are paying attention and talking about Bitcoin and talking about tokens and ICOs, uh, but it is world leaders. It is central governments and central banks uh, and, you know, the heads of uh, major kind of enterprise and, and, you know, Fortune 500. They are all talking about and paying attention to uh, and responding to tokenization and cryptocurrency. And that's a really important uh, kind of step in the kind of mainstream adoption. Like we know, we now know that this phenomenon, this kind of movement of blockchain will go, will, will, will get there. It's happening because everybody's paying attention. Um, and I think that, you know, on, on the tokenization side, you know, these, these ICOs, uh, or initial coin offerings, they started off as purely like a crowdfunding mechanism. They evolved into, um, you know, a justification for utility and the creation of, um, you know, various methodologies to justify their existence. So, for example, you know, we look at ICOs all day long. We're pitched. I, I can't even tell you how many times a day people are trying to contact us. I can only begin um, to imagine. And and I'm not complaining. I love no, it. It's a good thing. It's right? great. You know, the the more people that are out there trying stuff, the the more that there will be a few that, you know, survive. Correct. You know, like turtles on the beach or something. Yeah. Now, I think that it's important because um, you know these these ICOs um, they are all trying to find their place uh, in terms of utility and value. Uh, and where I think this goes is away from a pure utility model where. You know, ICOs, you're buying a token, and that token represents the right to use the software, which is going to be ideally built, um, or in some cases has already been built. Right. Uh, so there's no equity involved. You just get to use the, the system. So imagine if, you know, you wanted to use Facebook, and every time you wanted to post or comment or like something, you had to pay a tiny fraction of a token. That's the kind of analogy. And people are pre-buying, pre-purchasing these tokens 
in the uh, in an event called an initial token sale or an ICO in the hopes that they will want to use the software or in the hopes that other people will want to use the software, which due to uh, kind of scarcity and finite supply of the actual tokens uh, will cause, you know, the increase in demand will cause the, the, the value of the token to go up. Now, it starts off there, and that's kind of where we are, and it's really been, you know, the summer of ICOs. Uh, but now winter's coming, and it's changing. Uh, we're seeing the ICO markets tighten up. Um, you know, what used to be, we used to have this joke where, you know, 50 was the new five, where a $5 hmm. million dollar ICO was now, you know, just typically people would be raising 50. Right. And that became 100 or 70 or you know, 200 even. Um, you know, we saw EOS with its you know, 200 plus sale and, and, and such. Yeah. But now it's come back down. Um, I would say that, you know, 20 is the new 50. Uh, and I've even been pitched uh, an $8 million ICO for, um, for 50% of tokens. So we're really seeing values come down. And what I think this means is I've been playing with this idea of where this all goes. And ironically, I think that equity, the traditional VC equity, has a big part to play in this. My feeling is that we're, you know, it's possible that the ICOs, that this this phenomenon of ICOs as a crowdfunding mechanism is extremely disruptive. But perhaps in the medium term, it's only disruptive to seed stage. And what we'll see is a small ICO, or relatively small, let's call it sub-10 million, ICO, which helps to build the community, it bootstraps the community, it invests the community in the success of the uh, of the application because all the, the investors are, are users and all the users are investors. Uh, and then we shift to an equity model. And then the equity model becomes uh, the second round of funding. Because the problem with ICOs is that you can't re-raise. Even if you split it up into multiple tranches of, of sales, once you finish, you're finished. There's right. no other way to grow the business, and it's a bit of a gamble to say, well, you know, we, you basically created an artificial window to get to success, which, you know, I, I mean, in some cases it's a good thing, but if you run out of money and if you don't achieve network effect uh, and product market fit in the timeline that your ICO, the funds raised from your ICO allows, you're dead. Right. But in the VC world, you can continue raising as long as you can continue getting people interested and, and you know, believing in your project. Right. I mean, there's no Series B in an ICO, right? It's just an ICO. That's it. You're, it's over and done with, right? You've created the token. You've created that store of value for the community and for this, the right to use the software and the right to participate in the community that you've started. But after that, there's no other way to raise in an ICO. So you have to kind of go back to the equity markets to do that. Yeah. I mean, I think that it makes a lot of sense. It does, um, actually different networks of people or different communities provide different things in the very early stages it it's great to have you know the support of a community um you know in the form of your your token buyers to support you because you actually need those users you actually need people to tell you you know by virtue of them voting with their with their tokens by either buying or selling your tokens that you're on the right track but then after that the wisdom of the crowd um diminishes Uh, and i think that you know, in the longer term, to have professional investors who know how to grow businesses and who, who can put you in front of the right types of partners, partners and, um, and guide the business becomes more valuable. We haven't really seen that happen yet because ICOs are so new, but I just feel like uh, the VC system is not dead. 
it's just changing. I think this hybrid model makes a lot of sense. Uh, and we've really started to see ICOs and, and these project teams become more interested in this idea of, of, of long-term equity plays. Yeah. I mean, wasn't it having, I, I think it was having where they said like the rumors of my death had been highly exaggerated. I can't remember who it was, but I think it's the same thing for venture capitalists in relation to this ICO market. I think you're, I think you're actually exactly right. I think from an early stage funding perspective, from a seed stage funding perspective, the ICO is going to continue because it's a great way to sort of get a bunch of ambassadors involved in the development of your business. And those ambassadors are not regional. They're not even local. They're global if you're lucky. Right. And that's really important if you're particularly if you're talking about a distributed software system. So that, that helps. But later on, if you want to create real usage for your software product, you're going to need professionals to help you do that. And the benefit of a venture capitalist is not just the money. Money's a commodity in my mind. It's the connectivity that they give to you and their business building abilities. So that's never going to go away. I think. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I, and I think it's, it's quite interesting though, you know, the way that we see the ICO market or the tokenization market uh, is in kind of three phases or three waves. Tell me. The first wave is, um, tokenization for blockchain companies. And so that's what everybody knows. It's, it's the Gnosis, it's the Augurs, it's the Ethereum. Um, you know, it's using tokens to capture basically blockchain based, you know, technology value. The second wave is quite interesting too. And we're, we're, we've started to see this with the likes of Kick. Uh, with one of our projects, uh, Simple Token, uh, and with a few others. These are companies uh, who are quote-unquote traditional internet companies who are using tokenization to disrupt their own businesses, to capture more value, and to provide uh, more liquidity and, and perhaps more interoperability. Right. But the third phase, and I think we're going to see a lot more of that. Um, I mean, there are so many internet companies now who are saying, oh, maybe I should do an ICO. But I think the third, third wave is, is probably the most powerful, the longest tail, and the most interesting. It's late-stage private equity and bricks and mortar and tokenization for them. And we haven't really seen that yet. Uh, and it's even a bit hard to kind of conceive of what that might be. But it's this idea that companies like Walmart, like um, you know uh, Whole Foods, or any of these really large uh, bricks and mortar companies, physical physical businesses, um, could use tokenization uh, as part of their business. In whether way, they're in, in a way, they've yeah. already done this right over time. They just haven't called it tokenization, and they haven't used blockchain and sort of cryptocurrency technology to do this. But in my mind, if you look at just loyalty points, they're just creating a currency out of nowhere, and that loyalty point is spendable it's in some cases it's transferable right and that's just another we can we can spend a lot of time talking about businesses that sort of are using now the blockchain and ethereum to enhance the ability to use loyalty points and to make them interoperable like there's a big business around that as well so that's going to happen right in the same way that like if you have a membership card at sam's club or at walmart yeah that's in a way creating their own value right Absolutely. Yeah, I think that's a, that's a great example. Um, the, the loyalty points, it's a way to kind of store, to, to quantify the value of loyalty, uh, and then make it somehow tradable. Um, but that's really just scratching the surface. I mean, sure. what does it look like when, you know, you take the entire supply chain of a business, uh, and you quantify the, the value of that movement, or even of the data that records that movement? And you create markets around the data that a product is moving from A 
to be. And you create derivatives and insurance products uh, and all these types of streams for a physical business. Like there's so much value that is just lying there. It's like little specks of gold in a field, uh, you know, and, and it just requires someone who can kind of sift through it and make it all make sense and, and bring it all together. That's what tokenization can really do for kind of bricks and mortar and late private stage, yeah. late PE. So I think that, you know, there, there's so much more to go. And this, you know, $200 billion market cap, it's, it's nothing. It's, it's nothing. It's nothing. It's nothing. So if you, if you want to talk about supply chain, you're talking about a business that looks a lot to me like Max Ward's open port, right? So you take a business that understands a complete supply chain from, from factory to port to delivery to end warehouse to then delivery to like retail chains. And you put that, all that on the blockchain, you can have a massive paradigm change in that entire, not just the supply chain, but the value chain around it. What does it do for the disincentivizing of counterfeiting, right? Or fraud or theft. Or even being late. Yeah. Or lateness or on timeness, right? I mean, if you, but if you, if you talk to Max and you just look at what this open port business is doing, their usage or their um, proposed usage of tokenization across the entire supply chain is a massive paradigm change because it also allows people, if there's a KPI for every small activity along that supply chain, the incentives for people to kind of behave better are just massive. But again, absolutely. But again, sorry to interrupt you, but again, creating the derivatives around that and trading around that as well is just mind-bogglingly endless. Oh, yeah. I mean, a, a friend of ours, uh, he's actually our advisor, Chris Dark. Uh, he's the, the international president of a business called uh, C2FO, uh, which is one of the largest uh, kind of invoice financing businesses in the world. And, you know, we were just talking about, you know, what tokenization could do. And, uh, and you know, all they do is they take um, – you know, kind of value that's, that's stored in the form of unpaid invoices and they add, yeah. they add kind of liquidity to it. And what, what kind of came out of this discussion is this idea that it's not just the, the unpaid invoices, it's the information about, you know, who has what, when, and when things will move right. that is actually the real value. Sure. And it's just kind of stuck. And tokenization, the ability to, um, anonymize, not anonymize, but keep it, keep this data private. But valuable as a as a um, as a as an asset. I mean, there are people that want that data and will pay for that data if you can make it if you can deliver it in a timely and fluid fashion. There are just massive markets for data, and with the rise of machine learning, the rise of AI, uh, you know, without kind of a, a steady stream of, of data to feed, um, I think that uh, it, it won't work as well as it could. Right. And I so think tokenization is that bridge. It is. And and to me, any business that has an intermediary, right? This is why you see it's one of the reasons why you see, and we can talk about this a little bit, there's not so much time left, but you can see guys like Jamie Dimon coming out and saying that they really don't like Bitcoin. But what they're really saying is they don't they don't want to be disintermediated as financial intermediaries, right? And I don't think most people understand what that means. They sit in between every transaction. And one of the things that blockchain itself, Ethereum does is it removes the necessity for them. The only reason why people deal with banks or not the only reason why besides money lending, right, is for trust, right? I put my money in a bank. I trust the fact that it's going to be there and I can do transactions with it. But the ability to disintermediate parts of the financial system across the board. And like you said, whether it's with straightforward products or with derivatives of all those products, plus the information around those products, again, it's just mind boggling, right? Because it also, allows the democratization we haven't talked at all about the decentralization of all these systems right but it also allows people that have never been involved at 
the minutial level to be involved in all those systems and all the value that's going to get unlocked from it as well. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And mm. I think we know we're really just at that, that early stage. I mean, another uh, project that we're working on uh, at, at Kinetic is a company called Bluezell. And it's a distributed uh, application database layer. So the ability to have all these, you know, this, these future dApps. I mean, there's a lot of dApps already, decentralized applications or distributed applications. Um, you know, they all kind of need like this database layer. Uh, and so Bluezell is trying to connect that database layer to the rest of the, this kind of new internet stack. So if like Ethereum is, is kind of the backbone of it, you have, you know, the file coins and the store J's who are, who are doing, uh, decentralized file storage. You have the golems and the iExecs who are doing, uh, kind of network based and P2P and, and decentralized, uh, processing power, like, you know, processing computer graphics. And at the top, you have the dApps, but then in that middle layer, the ability to, you know, connect dApps with databases, uh, that's kind of what Bluezell is doing. Like, there are so many of these, you know, um, applications which are, are filling in that, that middle layer, uh, at scale that it, it's really exciting. Yeah. I mean, it was interesting to me. You brought up a business called Simple Token, which is a Jason Goldberg business. I don't think most people are going to be familiar with the Simple Token business, unless we're talking about something sure. different. But no, that's it. That's it. That's Jason Goldberg. Absolutely. Yeah. So Jason obviously is the founder, builder of Fab, saw spectacular success there, and then, you know, ended up selling that business for $10 million. But what Jason learned a lot of things along the way there. Founding people, right, in a way to try to extract value for people's individual information. I think one of the things that Jason realized was that all this stuff that's going to sit on the blockchain, that the building that infrastructure is actually quite hard. And I think one of the learnings that he had was, you know what, I'm going to, if I'm going to make this business real, I'm going to make it real for everybody. And that I think is the genesis of the simple token business, right? So now it's the ability to sort of tokenize any kind of digital community and building that infrastructure is hard. He's been working on this for a while, as you probably know. Yeah. Um, but that simple token business to me is fascinating. It's so fascinating. So fascinating. I, so I think Jason is really brilliant. He, he's really kind of uh, hit upon something which is right in his wheelhouse, it thinking is, about how to kind of open this up for, for kind of consumers. And, and Jason is great at building products. So, you he know, is, we've, we've been fortunate to work alongside him and, and I think he's going to do a great job at this. I think he's going to kill it actually. And you'll be interested to know that I'm getting on the phone with Jason tonight actually to interview him for this too. So I take a deep interest actually in the simple token business. I do think it's interesting that instead of building his foundation in Switzerland, he's done it in Hong Kong. I like the fact that he's using the regulatory framework of the HKMA to build this as well. It's actually one of the things I think that's going to help that business grow and grow up really nicely. So I, I think it's interesting that you're involved there too. I just think it's coincidental if nothing else. But I, I, I believe really strongly that that's going to be, again, a phrase I like to use, just a paradigm change in the way the tokenization of things happens. Totally agree. Totally agree. Um, do you want to talk a little bit, because we haven't spent any time, we don't have a lot of time left. I, I know you're busy this morning, but do you want to talk a little bit about the investment thesis? We talked about it a little bit in general, in general terms, but. Sure. Because as a, as an investment vehicle, right, you do a bunch of things, right? Through Kinetic yes. as an entity, but you're also investing in companies, right? Besides the fact that you're helping companies, you also invest in them as well. Correct. What's correct. the thesis that you're looking at? For the most part. Notice I didn't ask you about verticals because I think it's a straw man question and I think it's a little bit of silliness, right? But I just want to know sure, what the sure. thesis is. Yeah, the industry, the, the industry vertical question is a tough one because it's, you know, well, you tell me industry and I'll tell you how blockchain is going to disrupt Exactly. It. Yeah. I mean, it's yeah. a stupid question, which is why I don't ask it. And when people ask me, like, what's your industry vertical focus? I'm like, can I have another question? 
Yeah. <laughs> Which industry? Yes. Yeah, yes, exactly. Yes. Um, I think that for, for us, our thesis really goes back to, um, in a way, community. And this brings me all the way back to, you know, kind of my learnings, my early learnings as a, as a high school student at, at, at the friend school. Right. Um, you know, one of the Quaker values is community and that you're a part of a whole. Right. Uh, and that all of the parts of the whole are, are important uh, and they all function together. Um, blockchain itself really, you know, I often say is, is about community. Ironically, it's, it's not it about, is, though. It not is, though. about the technology. It's about community. It's about how network effect can be generated through community, yeah. through all of the parts kind of coming together. And what blockchain does is gives us uh, an easier way and a more frictionless way to be together, either as token holders or as, as I, you know, other kind of um, like members of this, of this movement. And for me, that kind of evolves, you know, the way that I invest is, is the way that I came into the space, which is trying to build the community. Um, and so, you know, when people say, uh, wow, we invest in infrastructure and protocols and platforms. I mean, we do too. This is our, our on the surface, our thesis is about that. We're right. trying to build the infrastructure, the roads, the, the bridges, the pipes of blockchain. But ultimately, what we're really trying to do is connect people yeah. uh, and connect communities. Because I think that interoperable communities um, using either blockchain and or tokens um, as as a means of connecting is really powerful. So when I look at companies, I'm looking for um, I'm looking for how they will be able to catalyze and ignite the communities that will be using them. And in many cases, that turns out to be you know the infrastructure uh, because the infrastructure sitting at a lower level uh, in this stack has just by virtue of its positioning has the greatest chance of impacting the greatest number of people in right. the same way. So Ethereum just activates massive communities. Bitcoin does the same. Um, and then other platforms, you know, uh, have that potential too. So I'm an advisor to Melonport, uh, which is the yeah. crypto, you know, um, portfolio, crypto asset portfolio management protocol, uh, you know, founded by uh, Mona Elisa and yeah. Rita Trinkler. An incredible project, and I think they're really at the forefront of reshaping uh, how you know kind of crypto markets will, will function uh, with their with their product. So, and I think that that as a protocol, as a, as a platform for crypto financial industry or crypto asset, will be really impactful because everybody's going to build on top of them. Yeah, and I want to bring up one more point that you brought, and then I'll let you go. But you talked a little bit about how everybody's talking about this, right? And if you participated at all, or even watched what happened at the Singapore FinTech Festival last week, you saw that the Monetary Authority of Singapore, right? So the MAS, you talked about the HKMA already. But, <clears throat> excuse me, how the Monetary Authority of Singapore, along with Accenture and IBM, announced their project Ubin, right? With 11 financial services companies participating, trying to tokenize and digitize the Singaporean currency. I just think it's again really interesting that it's made the it's made its way all the way to the financial authorities in a way that you couldn't have imagined even six months ago. Well, it's just a testament to the to you know the ongoing idea that everything in the crypto space moves much faster than yeah. we ever thought it would. Yep, exactly. I mean, I never thought that we would be where we are now, um, and it. I, I think that whereas before I would have said, "Oh, we'll see a national digital currency." you know, a, a, a crypto backed, uh, economy, uh, you know, in, in 20, you know, 2025 or something, 
No way. You know, I think I think we'll see it before the you know before 2020. I think Absolutely, it's, it's before really, the end of the decade. This is already yeah. going to be done. I mean, if you look at what's happening in Estonia, right? And I and again, if if you look at what Jason's doing at Simple Token, right? Um, that's going to have a massive impact, right? Because that technology is, you know, getting built out really quickly and he's in Berlin. So it's not even like he's in the United States anymore. So this stuff is all getting built globally. It's all decentralized. It's all moving ridiculously rapidly in a way that I think is great, actually, right? The faster it moves, the better it moves for me in this case. And I think seeing what's happening there, again, from the monetary authorities is really fascinating for me. Yeah, yeah. And I have to say that, you know, for all the kind of, um, flack that regulators get. Uh, the the reality is that regulators have a, a you know a, a duty and a responsibility to their citizens, uh, and you know this idea that they will not regulate or that there is a there is a a future of an unregulated uh, kind of crypto uh, ecosystem. It's just not realistic. Um, I think that you know regulators provide a val a, a really valuable function in their jurisdiction. And at the same time, crypto allows us to have non-jurisdictional spaces where we can also do things. Sure. We don't, you know, smart contracts, you know, self-enforcing, self-executing contracts allow us to exist in third spaces. So all that means is that there's options and we can now price um, physicality and, and kind of geography in the form of national, you know, national services however we want to. We have options. So I don't see regulation as a bad thing. It's not. Uh, because it, it's, not the, it's not the entirety of, of the future. But in a way, right, and we can end with this if, if you don't mind. But we can either be a bunch of cowboys, right? Sorry to make a, a United States reference, but we can either be a bunch of cowboys like operating in the dark or we can operate in the light and we can have some rules around what we're doing. And, you know, rules by definition are things that are generated and enforced by regulators. So I don't mind regulation at any level really because – it makes it, it's, I don't like opacity, right? I like clarity and the transparency of a regulation to me is better than having nothing there. Absolutely. Absolutely. There, there's one last project, which I think is really fascinating that we're, we're also helping. It's called the Gibraltar blockchain exchange. Yeah. Uh, where, you know, that's, that's exactly it. It's, you know, a, a jurisdiction which is providing regulatory certainty, uh, for ICOs and for crypto exchanges. I mean, if you're a startup and, and, you know, you're worried about, potentially being prosecuted uh, after your ICO retroactively, um, you're going you're gonna to really value any jurisdiction that says, you know what, if you can pass our standards, if yep. you can get through our application process, yep. you're in the clear. That's great. Certainty is, is, is valuable. Yeah, no, I agree. Transparency and certainty is super valuable. Look, I don't want to take up any more of your time. I really appreciate you coming and talking to us uh, today. And I just want to say thank you very much. I, I look forward to sort of watching not just the kinetic, I mean, the simple token stuff you're working on and all the other projects that you're working on, but also the development and the growth of kinetic capital. So I really appreciate your time. Absolutely. Thank you so much for the opportunity to, to join you on, on, on your program, Michael. You've been listening to Asia Tech Podcast. Find out more at www.asiatechpodcast.com.